the verses that are before us, they're describing the future. They're describing uh, e the eternal state that we will enter into eventually where uh, the tabernacle of God is with men. And, you know, that's always been the, the intention of God from the very beginning. God created the human race for the very purpose of having communion, having fellowship. Now, we're, we're often asked uh, the question, if God made the world and the world or, and God is good, then why is the world so messed up? Why is the world in the, in the condition that it's in? And this is a, a, a perplexing problem for many people. And yet the, the answer to the question is actually quite simple. It's not that there isn't an answer. It's just that most of the time, people don't like the answer. They don't want to hear the answer. But the answer is this. The world that we live in, the world that we've known, is not the world that God created. It's not the world that God intended. Man, as we see and as we know ourselves to be, uh, we are not what God originally created or intended. You see, the Bible teaches that originally everything was good. When God created the world, it was good. God created uh, man, kind, man and woman, and it was all good. Man was living in communion. He was living uh, in fellowship with his maker. But something happened. Man revolted against the rule of God, and that was sin. And that sin resulted in death. And everything that we have known since the fall, all of the, the struggles, all of the misery, all of the suffering, it all originated not with the actual creation, but with man's rebellion. And the plan and the purpose of God since then has been to restore the world and humanity to what God originally intended. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 are telling us about. Revelation 21 and 22 are telling us what uh, this new world is going to actually look like. And we read here in verse three, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Tabernacle, the, it's kind of an older word. It's kind of a word that, that seems to have uh, sort of a religious connotation. But the, the word actually simply means a tent. And it, the picture is that God is going to be living among men. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, and he will dwell with them. And like I said, this was God's original purpose when man was created. God created human beings so that he could have a relationship with them, not because God needed that. It wasn't like there was something lacking in God, that he was lonely, uh, that he needed someone to tell him how great he was. Uh, none of that existed. God is he's entirely self-sufficient. He's perfect. He has no need whatsoever. 
even within the divine nature, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's perfect community or there's perfect fellowship that exists with God from the very beginning. So, so why does God create man for fellowship? Well, God creates a, a, a being in his likeness, really, that he might bless. That, that's really the intention. God creates humanity that he might live in a relationship with, with humanity where humanity is able to experience all the goodness and the love and the blessing of God. I, I was trying to think of um, a, a particular verse. You know, I was trying to kind of narrow it down to one verse that maybe uh, communicated that. But I, I don't know that there is one verse that necessarily does that. I think it, it's the, the compilation of, of many different statements in the scripture that, that communicate that to us. But, but a few verses came to mind that convey this idea about the, about the heart of God and his desire for humanity. In Deuteronomy 5.29, the Lord said this. He said, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So here you're, you're, God is expressing his desire that it might be well with them. See, that's, that's God's intention for humanity. Oh, that it might be well with them. Isaiah 48, 18 says something similar. Again, God speaking. He says, oh, that they had heeded my commandments. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. He's speaking directly to the nation. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see, God said, oh, I, I wanted you to know peace. That's my heart for you. Jesus said something like this himself when he came to Jerusalem for the last time. And he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he lamented. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Oh, if you would, oh, had only known this day the things that belong to your peace. And although each one of these uh, passages that I've just uh, referred to, although each of them are... Uh, speaking specifically of God's desire for Israel, they give us insight into God's heart toward all of mankind. Because, of course, the unique position that Israel had was in order for God to bring his blessing to the entire human race. Remember, it was through Abraham, when God set Abraham aside, who was the, became the father of the, the nation of Israel, uh, God said to Abraham, he said, through you and your seed, your descendant, the Messiah, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we get, we get an insight into the heart of God. We get an insight into the purpose of God in uh, the creation of humanity. God created a being that he might lavish his love and bestow his goodness upon. That's God's original intent and purpose in creation. And the world is the way it is today, not because this is the way God made it, it's the way it is today because this is the result of a long rebellion against the creator.
And here we're, we're being told about the end of all of that, that all of that is going to come to an end and the good God is going to then lavish that goodness upon humanity. Now, make no mistake about it. God is good. It seems like today, more than in recent generations, there is a tendency on the part of so many people to impugn God, to, to find fault with God, to, uh, to, to kind of put the blame on the idea of a God for every uh, bad thing that happens in life. And, and there, there's a big uh, challenge that, that kind of is coming forth uh, almost collectively from Western culture about the, the goodness of God and the idea that, you know, there, there is no God or if there is a God, he's not a good God and that sort of thing. Make no mistake about it, God is good. And there are multitudes of things that, that point to the goodness of God. I mean, if you, if you think about it, put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. You got a planet full of people that you made who absolutely hate you and uh, go out of their way regularly to violate everything that you told them to do, uh, have absolutely no gratitude, no thanksgiving, no appreciation for anything that you've ever done. And what do you do? Well, you know, if I'm God, I just blow the place up. That's what I do. <laughs> and you'd probably do that too if you're God. But what does God do? He doesn't do that. He, he lets it all go on. And we get to, even in our worst kinds of circumstances, there are still pleasures, there's still enjoyment, there's still benefits. Like Jesus reminded us, God makes his son to shine on the, the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, God really is good. I love the way A.W. Tozer spoke of the goodness of God. He said, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. Do we realize that? God's attitude toward humanity is, is friendly. And that is even now, under the, the present circumstances where most of the, the human race is still in revolt and st is still in rebellion. But God's heart is, is that, that one of, of goodness and love and mercy and blessing. So anyway, back to what we're looking at here in the text. We're looking at God's ultimate purpose in living eternally in joyous community with humanity. We're looking at here in the third verse, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. We're looking at the fulfillment of what God promised he would do in that he promised that he would be with us. In the seventh chapter of Isaiah, the 14th verse there was that, that great prophecy about the virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah's prophecy. 700 years later, when that is realized, when Jesus is born, Matthew, writing after the fact, 
He looks back at the birth of Jesus. He refers to Isaiah's prophecy, but then Matthew interprets the name Emmanuel for us, and Matthew tells us that Emmanuel means God with us. And you see, the first phase of that prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world as God with us. And as we read in John 1.14, that the word who is God became flesh and he tabernacled among us or he pitched his tent among us. So that was phase one. The, the millennium will be phase two. And I, I believe people have asked me this question. Well, how, you know, it says that they shall call his name Emmanuel. How come they didn't name the child Jesus Emmanuel? Well, I believe that he will be called Emmanuel in the millennial kingdom, that that will be the way he is referred to, probably one of, of many ways, but that one specifically, because then when Jesus sits upon the throne of, of glory in Jerusalem, he will indeed be God is with us. But the final and ultimate phase and fulfillment of that word is what we're reading about here in the new heaven and the new earth, the tabernacle of God is with men and God will dwell with them. That's the heart of God, to dwell with man. And along with that, the wonderful news, verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. You know, all that we've known from the very beginning, with the, with the exception of that very brief period of time, nobody even knows how long of a period of time it was before sin entered into the world. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We know that it happened before the conception of the first child, because we know when, uh, when uh, Adam and Eve had their first child that, that sin had already entered into the world. So how long it was that Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God, we don't know. But whatever the duration of time, once they revolted against God, once they sinned, they, they set in motion through sin all of the things that we have lived with for all of the centuries that are summed up in death, sorrow, crying, and pain. That's the history of the world. Death, sorrow, crying, and pain. But here's the wonderful news. None of those things will be part of God's eternal kingdom. The former things have passed away. And, you know, as we, as we look around the world that we live in currently, and as we see, it seems like an, an escalation of, of the kinds of things that are described here, death, sorrow, crying, pain, oh, our hearts just long for, is there ever a time when this is going to be over? The answer is yes. There is a time when it's going to be over. God's telling us about that time right here. You know, this past week I read a book of, uh, written by a friend of mine on... Um, it's actually an autobiography, and um, he's, a, he's a rapper, and uh, he's from the inner city of St. Louis, grew up there, and he's basically telling 
you know, his life story and telling ultimately about his conversion and so forth. It's a, it's a very powerful book, but I have to say, as I read through it, it there were just so many moments of, of such tragedy as I'm reading through. And the most of the book deals with his life from, a, from about the age of 12 to maybe 22 or so. I think it was probably about then that he, that he came to faith in Jesus. But in that, say, 10-year period, he describes the death of 18 friends or family members through uh, gang and drug-related violence. And as I'm reading this story, I'm just, you know, my heart's just breaking. And I'm, I'm looking at the misery that he himself uh, experienced in growing up in the inner city there. And, and then I'm reading the news and I'm hearing about the very thing he's describing. I'm hearing about that happening uh, on the streets of Chicago presently. Uh, the murder rate in Chicago is up 84%. And the, even the, the greater tragedies, it seems that nobody's doing anything about it. It seems that there's a lack of motivation even to do much about it. And this is just the sad state of affairs. You know, it's a crazy, you know you're living in a crazy world when people are now looking at things like that. Or they're looking at terrorism and things similar to that. And they're saying, hey, well, this is just the way it is. You know, uh, I saw on the cover of The Economist magazine, the most recent issue, uh, two guys, paramilitary kind of looking guys, they're, uh, they're police officers somewhere in Europe, maybe Brussels, maybe Paris. And there they are with their, um, you know, whether they're Uzis or their AK-47s uh, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're in all of their gear standing on the street corner of some European city. And the, the, the caption on The Economist is Europe's new normal. And that to me is the most insane thing. It's a settling into, well, this is just the way it is. This is the reality now. It's the new normal. There's not even, you know, we're living in a time when because people can't identify evil as evil, they can't fight evil. They're not really sure if this is evil. It's just, you know, this is the struggle of a, you know, a different culture, different people. So this is just the way we live now. And that it kind of seems like what's happening on the streets of some of our American cities as well, with the violence and the murder and all of that. It's like, well, this is just what it is. Well, we just need to get used to it. But thank God, God doesn't think that way that this kind of thing is not going to go on indefinitely, that the former things, the death, the sorrow, the crying, the pain, the disasters, the plagues, the famines, the wars, the inquisitions, the gulags, the holocaust, the killing fields, the jihads, and everything else that's similar to that, thank God that one day all of this will be gone forever, never to be even remembered again. That's the beautiful thing. Not only is this going to cease to be, it will be blotted from man's memory. And a parallel passage to what we're reading here in Revelation 21, Isaiah 
65, 17, the Lord says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Oh, that's so glorious. The former things will not even be remembered. God is going to so wipe away the past. You know, some have said, well, you know, there's just no way that a person could ever fully recover from or, or be delivered from some of the horrific experiences in life. And I would agree if it was left up to man, if it was left up to uh, circumstances, if, if it was left up to psychology or whatever, I agree that that would be impossible. But that's not the case with God. God is going to wipe these things so thoroughly out that they will not be remembered or come to mind. C.S. Lewis addressed this very thing. People in his day said similar things, and in his brilliant and imaginative way, he responded. He said this. He said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work itself backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. And at the end of all things, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. Now, I don't know if you totally get what he's saying, but he's, he's drawing from what we just read in Isaiah. The former things have passed away. And for all of eternity, we will actually feel as though we never lived anywhere else. We've never been anywhere else. That's how radically new God is going to make the universe. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. No more death or sorrow or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. And then John goes on to say, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. God's going to make everything new. And you know what? We can't even really imagine what that's like. We, we really can't. There's, we, can, we can only go so far. God's given us somewhat of a description here in the verses that we're looking at. And we might be able to use our imaginations and kind of, you know, elaborate on what, what he's given us. But the truth of the matter is God making all things new, we, we can't really grasp it. Ephesians 3.20, a, a verse that many are familiar with, it tells us something about this, this very thing where it says... Uh, Paul says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Now, Paul is saying that God's going to do things that we, we <laughs> the greatest thing we could think to ask for, this will far exceed it. As far as our imagination can take us in considering the goodness and the glory and the beauty and the, the, the wonder of God, um, our imagination can only take us so far. And, and this is true when it comes to the things that we're talking about here. 
we need the Spirit of God to even give us a little, just a, a little taste of what these realities are. But he's going to make all things new. And then uh, just almost as though God uh, anticipates the, the human response, oh, could it really be? Oh, I, I just can't even, I, I don't know if I could even believe that. He reminds us these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. You know, the longer I live and the more I experience life and the more I, I see what's happening in our world and the more I listen to the voice of man uh, and the more I meditate on God's word, I, I just become more and more and more and more convinced of the truth of God's word. You know, the, the older I get and the more I see, it doesn't cause me to question the truth of God's word. It affirms to me the truth of God's word. Because the longer we go and the more we see the, the influence of the truth of the Christian gospel uh, waning in the culture, and the more we see that the, that the, the human mind is setting forth the ideas of the day and the, and the standards of the day, the more you realize, man, this is, this is crazy. This is, this is nuts. There was an article this past week in the um, Atlantic Monthly, and the article is written by a, a philosopher, and he's talking about the growing trend among scientists and philosophers to embrace uh, the idea of determinism, a biological determinism. And uh, the, the article, I, I think the, the, the title or, you know, the, the subtitle uh, is, is something to the effect that uh, man doesn't really have free will, but we should not let that word get out. So, so here's the idea. This is the, this is what's coming forth from the, the supposed brilliant minds of the day, the great thinkers, scientifically and, and, uh, philosophically. That you are nothing but chemistry. All of your feelings, all of your desires, all of your thoughts, and ultimately your behavior is not rooted in any decisions that you make about anything. It's all predetermined by your, the chemistry in your brain. And some people's chemistry in their brain leads them to be nice and kind and gentle and sweet and benevolent and all of that. And then, you know, some other people's chemistry in their brain leads them to be hateful and spiteful and murderous. And, uh, but you know, in the end, who can, you can't really blame anybody. It's not their fault. It's, this is biological determinism. So this is, this is what the great minds of the day are saying. Well, in, well, in, in the end, of course, you, if that's true, you could never even conclude that there's anything right or wrong. So the, the end of the article is essentially saying, look, this is probably true, but we shouldn't tell people this. Because if we tell them, they're not responsible. They already feel that anyway. <laughs> but if we tell them, we're, we give a license for anarchy and insanity. So, so this 
if you want to follow man's philosophy, if you want to put your stock in what people think about life and what the truth is and all of that, that's the road you're going to go down. But when I hear those kinds of things, to me, it's just an affirmation that, man, this is the truth right here. You know, the truth is that which corresponds to reality. And what the Bible tells me about life and humanity, that corresponds to reality. Biological determinism does not correspond to reality. These things are faithful and true. Everything that God has said about man is true. And history is just revealing that to be the case. But listen, everything that God says about the future is true as well. And what we're reading here today, it might sound too good to be true, but it is true. It is good for sure, but it's also true that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. I make all things new. And then we see that upon that declaration, and remember, it's him who's sitting upon the throne who's making this declaration. Then he gives an invitation and he gives promises. The invitation is this. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give, here's the invitation, of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So now remember, we're, we're looking at the future. We're looking at the new heaven and the new earth, but God is still inserting an appeal to those like us who are living before the realization of these things and giving us the invitation to come and be part of it. I will give of the water of life freely to the one who thirsts. The Bible uses water oftentimes as a symbol of the life of the Spirit, the life that God gives. You know, think of, think of water. Water is so amazing. Uh, to me, there, there are a few things that I just, um, I, I think about, I think, gosh, Lord, this is so brilliant. Sleep is a brilliant thing to me. You know, that you kind of just go into like a coma for some hours and and then you wake up and, you know, you're, you're rejuvenated, you're refreshed. I mean, you think, wow, God, you know, God puts you to sleep and he wakes you up. That, that's fascinating to me. Water's the same way. I think of water. I think of all the things that, that water does and the, the necessity of water. And of course, water does many, many, many things. But one of the things that we appreciate most about it is that it quenches thirst like nothing else that it satisfies like nothing else, that it refreshes like nothing else. You know, uh, I, you know, we were re recently over in Israel and then we went to Jordan and we went to the, to the rock city of, of Petra there. And, you know, it's just smack out in the middle of the desert. And you wonder, you know, how did this civilization even exist? Well, what happened is they had this elaborate a water system that they developed there out in the desert in the city. And the city flourished as long as the water was available. But when an earthquake struck and altered the city's ability to access the water like it once had, the city went into decline. And it finally, the whole 
uh, center of life there finally just disappeared uh, after another earthquake that completely uh, dealt with uh, this, the, the ability of the community to access water, took it away, and the, the civilization there perished. But water, but Jesus here and in other places, he, he likens his salvation to water. Remember what he says to the woman at the well? He's talking, uh, she's coming out to the well to, to draw water, to, to drink and so forth. And uh, Jesus says, you know, give me a drink. And uh, then he says, you know, she says, well, who are you? And they have this conversation. And he says to her, if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink the water that I will give, He's talking about salvation and the ability of him and him alone to satisfy. Uh, we read, that's in John chapter 4. Later on in John chapter uh, 8, or the end of chapter 7, we read about Jesus being at the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, he stands up there on the steps that would lead up to the temple. And he says to the crowd, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. So my point is that water is oftentimes a picture of salvation, and that's certainly what it's being referred to here, the water of life. And the water of life is free. So the invitation, the invitation is to come and receive I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. To him who thirsts. Every single person has a thirst. We, we, we're all living with that, that sense that there's something that's missing in my life. And we, we can't even put a finger on it. We don't even really know what it is. But that sends us on a search for fulfillment. And we go to all of these places seeking for fulfillment. And we think it's going to be in the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit or attaining of power. Or we think it's going to happen if we can just get more money or if we can get more prestige or if we can just get connected to, you know, a better group of people or if we could live in a different community or, you know, all of the different things we imagine are going to be the thing that's going to bring that, that final satisfaction where we can settle down and just enjoy life. They never come. They just keep going from one thing to another. There might be sort of a temporary uh, satisfaction. But you know, after a while, it, it just kind of the newness wears off, and then there you go back on the search again. That's the story of, of life here on earth. But Jesus gives the water of life. He gives it freely. He gives it to those who thirst. And the invitation is being extended here once again that anyone who is thirsty would come and receive the water freely because the promise then is that they who do that, they are the overcomers who shall inherit all things. Inherit all things. You know, this is something that you have to take by faith, but this is the truth of the matter. God's going to give everything to those who have followed him. And that's why he tells us things like, 
Deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. That's why he says, he who would uh, save his life will lose it. He who loves his life in this world is going to lose it. He who hates his life is going to keep it for eternal life. You see, the Lord could call us to and tell us with confidence that we don't need to strive to attain to a position or possessions or whatever it might be. Let our passions control us. We shouldn't strive to attain those things because those who do, who live for those things, all of those things are going to vanish. All of those things will ultimately be taken from them. And God's going to give everything to those who have followed him. That's what he's going to do. He who overcomes, she who overcomes shall inherit all things. And the all things that we're going to inherit, listen, they're the things not even of this world, but of the new world that's coming. You know, whatever you inherit in this world is bound to become corrupted. It is bound to wear out. It is bound to run down. Like Jesus told us that uh, he said, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. Because you store up treasure on earth, eventually it's going to become worthless. But the Lord is going to give us all things. God has made all things. When he originally created man and he created the world, it was so that man might enjoy the world. Man rebelled, messed everything up. God's going to do it all over again, and it's never going to mess up this time. And those who overcome, and we overcome by faith in Christ, those who overcome are going to inherit all things, and then we will come to that place like we began with, the ultimate goal and objective of God to live in fellowship with us. I will be his God, her God. He, she will be my son, my daughter. That's the end of the story. That's what God has in plan for us. And so since this is the reality, since this is the truth, you see, again, Jesus, and and look, the whole Bible is about this. The whole Bible is about this is coming in the future. And faith says, I believe that this is true. Therefore, I'm going to deny myself in this world, and I'm going to live for the next world. And I'm going to count on this with my very life. I'm going to count this to be true. And I'm going to wait for the promises of God rather than try to fulfill myself here and now. But listen, the ultimate objective is God with us. But God's with us still today even, right? So we, we get a taste of it today. But the fullness of it is coming in the future. But let's not be lured away from that fountain of the water of life. Let's not go out thinking that we're going to find this somewhere else. If we're feeling dry, if we're feeling thirsty again, we need to go back to the source. We need to go back to the fountain of the water of life and drink it freely. It's, it's available to us today. You know, thinking about what, what will that be like? God with us. Us with God, there in his presence. What will that be like? Well, again, it's, it's hard to even imagine what it's going to be like. C.S. Lewis, once again, uh, put it so, I think, really appropriately um, in his conclusion to the Chronicles of Narnia. 
And if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should read them. They're great children's stories, but they're not really children's stories. They're children and adult stories, but they're, they're stories about Narnia, this, this land, this imaginary land that is really C.S. Lewis's way of communicating biblical truth through that kind of imagery. And there's Aslan, the, the king of Narnia, who is a picture of Jesus. And there, he, he intertwines and weaves into these stories all, all of the great truths of Scripture. But in the very final book of the series, the, the Last Battle, and of course, it's the conclusion of everything, and he has them transitioning from this life and even life in Narnia into the eternal state. Listen to what he says. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, listen, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that, because that's the truth. As we go into the eternal age, we are going into chapter one of the great story that no one has ever read. So the, the things that God has in store for us, it's, it's like God said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God's given us, though, little taste of it by his spirit. And we can even think a little bit about what it might be like when we think about what it was like when Jesus was here. Because, of course, Jesus was the first phase of the fulfillment of the promise, God is with us. And what was it like when Jesus was with the disciples? Have you ever been reading through the Gospels and wished that you could have been there? You think, oh, man, I, w I wish I would have been there. I wish I could have seen that or experienced that. But, you know, think about it. What, what was it like to have God with you? Well, you weren't worried about anything. You weren't fearful because, you know, he, he could take care of it. If you were hungry, Jesus just created some food for you. He took a few loaves of bread and a few small fish, and he fed thousands of people. If you were in the midst of a storm and your life was threatened, what did Jesus do? Well, he just stood up and said, peace, be still. If you were accosted by a demoniac, what did Jesus do? He just cast the demon out of the person. If you were confronted with the death of a loved one, what did Jesus do? He raised him from the dead. And all of those things were just a, a little bit of a taste of what it was to have God with us. And remember that passage in Luke after Jesus has, has already risen from the dead and the, that, that those two men on the road to Emmaus, they, they encountered the resurrected Christ. They didn't realize it was him until after the fact. But then as they were describing their experience, they, they said concerning him, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us and he opened to us the scriptures? So, you know, the, these are all of the, the things that we can look back on and we, we can reflect and we can say, well, you know, this is, this is what it's like to have God with us. But this is a, a, a different situation because the context will be different. There will be no 
death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. So it won't be in the same context, but it will be the same Lord who is with us, and we are with him, and that's the final promise. I will be his God, I will be her God, and they shall be my people. And that wonderful purpose that God originally intended when he created the human race will be realized and worked out through all of eternity. And and all of that is just so absolutely amazing. But like I said, the alternative to this is is just these days, it's just bald-faced materialism, that you are just a material being, that you have no soul, that there is nothing after death, that you're just all, you know, it's all determined by your, your chemistry in, in your brain, and, and there's no right, there's no wrong. You live, you die, you do whatever, you, you disappear. You know, some people want to believe that, and they can but it flies in the face of everything that we see as reality. And it flies in the face of everything that a person knows deep in their innermost being. Because these words are faithful and true. This is the truth that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell and we will be there with him for days without end. And each and every day will be better than the one before. Lord, thank you that this is the truth. And Lord, even though we live in a world of unbelief and ongoing revolt against these truths, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that you came into the world, God with us, and that you gave up your life on the cross of Calvary so that you might open for us the fountain of living water. And Lord, may we continue to drink from that fountain as we await for the ultimate fulfillment of these things. And Lord, help us not to be bogged down. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be entangled in the things that everybody else is entangled in. Help us, Lord, even as we consider uh, the current situation, the politics, all of that. Oh, Lord, help us to look beyond that that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. Oh, how we thank you for that. Lord, if there's anyone with us today that is thirsty, oh, help them come and help them to take of the water of life freely. In Jesus' name, amen.